Our lives are built on the stories we tell. At both an individual and communal level, they orient and mould us, shaping our perspectives and outlining our reality. In an age where life can seem increasingly fettered by rules and regulations, where communication is drowned by endless jargon and noise demanding our attention, where the past is heaved overboard in order that we might more quickly race blindly towards the future, where places become zones, where endless change is automatically equated with progress, and where the sacred is replaced by the material, the stories we tell ourselves in modernity seem increasingly to offer little by way of consolation, enchantment, wonder or joy. So, with this in mind, and in search of alternate perspectives and old stories to be heard anew, I'm setting off from the archives of the National Folklore Collection, driving through the rolling plains of the Midlands to the village of Crusheen, County Clare, near Ireland's western coast, where I've arranged to meet a man who has been described as a national treasure, a master storyteller and an inspired performer. Eddie Lenehan is an author and storyteller who has been collecting traditional stories and customs from an older generation for over 40 years. His 2003 book, Meeting the Other Crowd, has been translated into many languages and is dedicated by Eddie to all those tellers now gone whose voices are not forgotten and to those still with us whose knowledge is more indispensable than ever. As usual, throughout this episode you'll hear a mixture of conversation along with original archival field recordings from the National Folklore Collection concerning the topics under discussion. For more information regarding these excerpts you can visit our SoundCloud page for details. So, welcome to Bluery Belladish number 22, and stay with us as we survey the landscapes and panoramas presented by the old stories and customs of our forebears as we traverse and explore invisible worlds. When did you grow interested in the oral tradition, specifically the idea that not well, just when I was sent out, you see, doing the MA for, for uh, phonetics, when I was sent out to mm. actually listen to old people's uh, accents mm. and found out that yeah, the accents were wonderful, but <laughs> the stories they were telling me in those accents mm. were a lot more interesting. And I've kept collecting ever since. So you've been collecting since the 70s now, is it? Oh, since I remember. I still have the first tape I ever made, October 1975, no, in Brosnan from an old man who remembered the Boer War. My God. And so I go back as far as the Boer War, <laughs> personally. Yeah. Personally. That's incredible. He remembered yeah. the Boer War, yeah. personally. Just and like he remembered the, the huge snowstorm of 1889, I think. When the snow was nearly six feet high and people had to dig themselves out to go to get food. He said it was terrible. Mm. It was terrible. And then within that you began to take an interest in, in ideas about the other world or the fairies, which often people have this kind of this I guess I suppose I get quite frustrated, a kind of literary tinkerbell kind of idea of these little uh, Yes. winged little Peter yes. Pan genteel ladies floating around which isn't how the fairies exist in tradition at all but mm. but you you took quite an, an interest in that sort of material and you collected an enormous amount from people about their their this belief in, in the other world community that live alongside us in the natural landscape absolutely right and that was what this first meeting the other crowd book was about and I'll certainly have a second volume of that because mm. I would have I've been very surprised that out of the various uh, 20 books I've done, that that would have been the most popular of all of them. Mm. Because, in fairness now to that Carolyn Green, she was the one who asked me, would I, would I be prepared to put those stories together? Because they might still have been lying on my shelves if she hadn't asked me. So I did, and she helped. And uh, that was published first in America mm. by um, by Penguin in America, and uh, it has come out since in Japanese. Have you ever seen the Japanese oh, edition? No. Beautiful edition, yeah, yeah. beautiful edition. They did the Italian one. I wasn't pleased with simply because that cover was the little Tinker Bell fairies. ridiculous. But the Japanese did a lovely job. Mm. And uh, Biddy Early will be oh, out yes. in Japanese next year. No way. And Defiant Irish Women came out in Japanese only about three weeks ago. And maybe to explain, even for people who are listening who mightn't be familiar, Biddy Early was a kind of a wise woman, a band facet from this side of the country. What, what was her uh, deal? Well, 
She was alive from 1798 to 1874, and there's no doubt about thousands came to her. Without a doubt, she cured. She was a herbalist. She was a clairvoyant. She was a healer, Banfassa. And of all the healing women of the 19th century, all over Ireland, she was by far and far away the, the most famous. People came from all parts of Ireland to Biddy. She lived in Fecal, about 12 miles from here, in East Clare. And you can still see the ruins of her, now it was a reconstructed cottage in the 1970s, Dr. Bill Lachnan uh, reconstructed her cottage, but now it has gone into ruins again. Um, people always said that you should never uh, profit by her name, and anybody who ever did had no look for it. Now, I don't know because I, I always fail to see that a woman who did such great good in her lifetime, how could you have misfortune from a woman like that? And I never heard of anybody speaking bad about Biddy. The only people who came to any kind of, we'll say, bad inverted commas, were people who went to mock her. If you went to mock Biddy, she'd very quickly put you in your place. She would know if you were talking about her on your way even there. She seemed to have a knack of knowing when you arrived what you had been saying about her. And what frightened people when you arrived at her house was that she'd know you by name, where you came from. Now, cynics always will say that, ah, she had somebody waiting, you know, who would tell her that, uh, that question, you know, one of her husbands, she was married four times, a husband or somebody else would be there to question people in the queue. There was always a huge queue at her door, uh, you know, further down the line. Oh, what has you here? And I don't believe it somehow. Hmm. It doesn't stand to reason, even though that could be true, but uh, it's, I don't know, knowing the kind of woman that she was. And I've heard stories, 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 because look at the book I did about her now. I've heard so many stories. Uh, not all, because I'm still discovering new ones. And the new edition of the book came out only recently. I, I found her death cert. Oh, well. Finally discovered her death cert. And, uh, I found it inside in the, the courthouse in Ennis when I was looking for something else, pure accident. And I found the death cert of one of her husbands, Tom Flannery. She was married four times. But that, I hope, will, has put an end to all this whole nonsense. So she was only a legendary character. Mm. And this notion that she put a curse on the Clare team, uh, who didn't win in our island in what, from 1914 to 1995. But how could she have put a curse on the Clare team, uh, which she died in 1874 and the GAA wasn't even founded until 1884. <laughs> she was forward thinking, she was fairly ahead of her time. Of course, she could foretell the future. Uh, <laughs> But ah, people, you know, stories grow legs, as they say. Mm. But there's no doubt that she did cure. And a uh, lot of the people, I've no doubt, who went to her, a lot of, the, lot of the, the illnesses were psychosomatic or they were in the head or what. But look, people, if they want to be their minds put at ease, she could do it. Hmm. And I suppose a lot of it was, you know, calm, talking, calm. She was a psychiatrist and a psychologist, I suppose, as yeah. well as everything else. Yeah. And what you'd pay a lot of money for today, wellness, call it what you like. Yeah. Biddy, Biddy could do that. She hmm. was a woman ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Mm -hmm. No, uh, you, you were going to give me one about Biddy early, yeah. Fancy. Mm. There was this man, he came from the same quarter as myself. He was a farmer. He had a place of around five cows, and he was keeping a very good horse. He was married, and he had five or six in family. And this harvest, it happened to come very bad. And he had hay bought, he had an acre, a couple of acres of hay bought, about a mile or two away from his own house. And himself and the wife went out, saving this day, like, and in that time, they would rack the hay in, in patches. For as you know yourself, there was no machinery. But this day, anyway, it was after a share of bad weather, and they were out, himself and the wife, and some of the family, and they had a terrible fairy wind come, the she or whatever you call it. 
And uh, course, in the olden times, when the Shigui had come, a lot of people would throw their stuff down if it came very bad. But this day, it came very bad altogether. And even the patches of hay, they were all, you know, thrown in together with the fairy wind. It came so bad. And the wife, his wife was lifting a fork of hay or something, and she got knocked. He took no notice of it. She got up again and saved away all day, and he took no notice of it. They went home, and, he, and everything was all right. But she, uh, after, a while, after a short while, she started to ail. Nothing wrong with her, no pain or anything. He tried doctors, he tried blessed wills, everything. No good. The devil or doctor faster wouldn't cure her. No good. That could... A year or two dragged away anyway, and she was still in bed. And go up and down, but no energy. Very little talk, and she was a very hearty kind of woman. A great singer and all that kind of a thing, but she stopped all that. I got, for a finish, she got very bad entirely. And he said there was no alternative, no, but to go to be the early. He started away with his horse anyway, but the wife, the morning he was gone, they went to home, not a home, whatever, she was very bad. He threw one in China anyway, and on down kill the morning in tennis, out to Tuller, Fecal, wherever be the early lived. He landed at Biddy's anyway, and the host was described him, and he drove in the road to the house, or drove in near the house anyway, in fact, he knew she was up, the door was open, there was a half door in the house. He went in anyway and he said, God bless, and she said, on your two and called him by his name. Well, I'm in the right house, he says, this be the early. You are, says she, in the right house, but you're be the late, says she. You, you neglected your wife, says she, you should have no woman at all. Why do you, how, she done found the man. How do you make out that, says she, you got kind of cluster. Nah, says she, sure, you should have come here, says she, with the last couple of years, says she. She sure, hadn't your own wife you were living with at all, so she didn't have a fairy you were living with since, you were, since the day of the Shigui, so she. You were living with a fairy all that lives, so she. I got the man was down and out. But I have another news for you. Your wife is dead now, so she. I got the poor man started to cry anyway, but she made tea for him anyway. When he had the tea drink anyway, he's right, Father, nothing, you have nothing to do for me. I have, so she, a thing to do for you. She went out anyway, and the thatch of the house along. People that time used to pick ash plants or any kind of sticks they'd be picking in the November darkness. They say they'd not thin and they were limber and they'd never break. She went along the thatch anyway, and she, she drew an ash plant. No good, she stuck it back again. She drew another. She stuck it back again. She drew the third. This'll do you, says she. When you'll go home now, says she, there'll be a kind of a corpse house or a wake in progress, says she, in your house. For anyone that'll shake hands to you, but one thing, says she, you mustn't do, you mustn't come off of that horse, you'll land at your own door, says she. First, says she, if you do, the game is up altogether. But one thing you must do, says she, when you go into the house now, they'll be talking to you and sympathising to you and all that, take no notice them, says she. Take no notice in the world of them, says she, but close the back door, says she, and open the front door. He started away and lay into the corpse in the bed with that hash plant he gave us, and bait bugger all out of her, He went up on the horse anyway, when he was coming away. He dragged away anyway, he got home. And when he landed at home, there was a bit of confusion around the house anyway. And the wake, the corpse house, or the wake, or whatever you'd like to call it, was on. First, when he went in, and he was, they were rushing out, sympathising with him. This poor old grabber woman rose out the corner, and he went. She went to shake hands him, and he gave her a chuck, and he landed inside in the fire. Into the room, and he went. Closed the back door, and he went. He opened the front door. Into the room, and he started baiting her with the ash plant for all he was worth. And she, the fairy went out the front door, out the back door, out the front door, and his wife came in the back door. That was all right, there was porter and baker's bread and other things landed for the wake. And so they said to be better to bring it home back again. No, sissy. To unstir all this, sissy, in place of whatever wake, sissy, we'll have a big dance. It so happened anyway that Garrett Barry, the piper, was in a neighbouring house. And that's in for him. And in place of a wake, they had a dance, and that woman lived for years and years after. Pishogs. Pishogs, people had a great belief in them, and believe you me, they're not gone away. No, that you scratch the surface and, and you they're see these things there, are still they're there. Still there. Pishog, that's still, these are kind of, again, for people who might be familiar with the term, are beliefs, I suppose, that 
do you that's your love can be taken away exactly, by, yeah. by, by magical means yeah. they're still there I get phone calls regularly from people worried out of their wits that they're being interfered with by people who have evil minds yeah and mm. I do the best I can again I'm no psychiatrist but you'd like to help people if you could well, tell me about these shows that you squad was there was something about that wasn't there Oh yes, there was. This place was full of those. And was there some families then that were associated with? Them? Oh yes, there was a lot of families who were uh, known to be associated and used to practice those things. Just running the family. I used to run in the family, mm-hmm. and it has done. Yeah. But they never had good luck after. No, and I seen, to my own knowledge. A young married couple coming back from a honeymoon. I happened to be painting in their house. Him and his wife, I, I had their room and all papered and done for them when they were coming back. And it was a Sunday night. I was uh, doing the doors there, uh, graining doors and all that. But I went up on a Monday morning. I had to get a, a drive up in a creamery car and I'd get in there by McSlattery's and just cross over, only crossing the Finston Inn to their place and into their house. And uh, this morning I went up, there was a full pig's head in the centre of their uh, hall doorstep and two dead magpies. Oh, I didn't uh, uh, take too much notice of it, but there was uh, a man, Bill Stubbins, he's still alive, he'll tell you if you ever meet him of that. I not too long ago I met him and hadn't seen him for quite a time and we threw that very thing down and there was another man there, James Mara. He was a curate in Drummond and he went, I said, that's a funny thing out there. I can't understand what that is. So they came out and he went, they went in and someone of them told Kennedy he wasn't up, so he got up. He got in his car and he drove back to the room and brought over the cure. The cure and he went put his stole on and he got them, one of them in, to get a pitchfork, put the pig's head into the wheelbar and put the two dead magpies. And he took it to one of the remote parts of the farm and he ordered, it, ordered them to be burned. At the meantime, he was walking with his stall on in front of that wheelbar, praying all the time. I seen that. This was one piece of business I came in contact with. Oh, yes. Just yesterday, there was a man here with me who is building a house, and he had a suspicion that maybe there was a fairy path Mm -hmm. in his way. And... He had been phoning me, just as you were, <laughs> and and uh, I said, look, the way the old people used to do this was, the, you know, by standing the corners. Uh, this time not with stones, but with the hazel sticks. And I said, look, I'm after trimming my hazel bushes, and I have hazel sticks here, and if you want to, and I told him how, and he came and he collected them yesterday. And if that puts the man, because the house he was building was very near a fault, mm. and he took him away, if it puts his mind at ease, isn't that a good thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what about the fairy pads, Neymar? Fairy pad ropes? Well, there's supposed to be one up there, yeah. whatever it is. It's right across the cushions there. There's a path through, and it's up to this last, I didn't go up that mountain now this last two or three years, but there was a plain path right across there. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't be allowed to build on it or anything? No, like well, that. I'll tell you now about the building part. Mm-hmm. I minded that myself. And anyone can see it yet. The foundation of a buyer was cut in this particular place. It might be in 1920, around that day. And that night, when the, this man was coming to build a buyer, he used to say, Manola. That night, the whole country was out watching the lights up all around. Mm-hmm. And they had to, they had to, the, the old foundation that was there yet, they never closed it in, and they built the buyer about uh, 20 yards over from there. 
Ah, but it was, a, it was alive with lights all around that foundation. It was, the lights all moving, moving around and round for the foundation was cut. It's an interesting aspect of the, of the, the function of tradition when you, when, despite our apparent kind of progress in our economies and modernity that people have that really you just need to scratch the surface and people's fears and, and fancies kind of come out in these ways. I remember reading about this idea of marking the boundaries of the site for a house with this instance of stones, I think it was from reading Kevin Donner, I think. And when they were knocked the next day, the idea being that, that there's a fairy path in this place that you shouldn't use it to build on. So you have to kind of navigate the, the natural environment or the space, not just along physical lines, but, but metaphysical lines as well. And that's something that seems to be disappearing in many ways today, that we think of the the natural landscape is just a kind of colossus or something like that but there's no meaning behind it but in a lot well, of these traditions you see that you see the, the, the importance of these the, the symbolic meaning of your the problem nowadays is you see with all this machinery um, farmers even have lost touch with their own land because uh, they get in a contractor to do a job and to just a job to be done <coughs> there was a time it isn't hugely long ago when we'll say a bit of rock in the land would be left there because first of all it was too troublesome to take out of it and secondly it had been there so leave it there was the notion it wasn't doing any harm but now it is because there's these huge massively expensive machines you see go on every road, the big green class of David Brown or John Deere machines that cost a quarter of a million. And if you injure one of those fucking machines by uh, hitting a rock, you can't risk it. So they're getting a big bulldozer to take this rock out of it. And by the way, when you're at that thing, you might as well do a job on something else and something else and something else. And you see... The farmer isn't doing it like he used to before, uh, uh, where he might hesitate uh, because that was there. My father told me, now it is, contract job, do the whole thing, shift it, bye-bye. And there's no respect for anything. And might even include a fault. And when the when they shifted, oh, Jesus, I never knew. And you know, what, what can be done when a thing is gone? Nothing. Don't matter. That was a national monument as well. Forget about fairy belief. But you're not allowed to shift these things. But when they're gone, that's it. There's no good finding a man 30,000 euro when it is gone. When it is gone, it is gone. And that's it. Yeah, the fairies, so you see, fairies interfere with no one. You don't interfere with their pat. Yeah. But you interfere with their pat. It's all over with you. Oh no, Medlerton belonged to the fairy. I know though the man went into a fairy rattle, cut down a tree, cut down sticks. The gentleman gave him the sticks, he was foolish. Yeah. And the man said, There's plenty of sticks there. He says, No, around there, he says, around that place there. And says the man, he says, um, can could we cut it down? He said, It would be dangerous to cut it down. And the old fellow said to the gentleman, of course, to get rid of them. Oh no, not at all, he says, you can cut it down. By Christ he came home and he never got out of bed till he died. You know, we shouldn't meddle with them. They don't meddle with you and you shouldn't meddle with them. I was chatting to, a, I was in, down in um, Port Dunlop recently giving a talk there, but I was chatting to a farmer, a Limerick farmer, uh, a young enough man, and he was describing, talking about place names, which is talking about the disconnect between nature there. And he was, I was mentioning how I noticed that even coming down here, I kind of take, you know, exit 15 off the N18 onto or 438 kind of thing, where, where numbers and letters replace, zones replace places with names of townlands or families or names or place names and fields and so on but but this farmer is saying that even where he has his cattle he uses some sort of software to mark the fields and roads and number it but what he's done is he's gone and he's he's identified the old uh, the family names the local names of, of those fields of the places that they retain but but like you say when you have one man essentially in a factory roving up and down in one of these machines the metal is gone oh. the, the, the communal aspect of these things disappeared on the land in that sense, I suppose, is uh, not only disenchanted in the sense of belief, but there's just there's an ignorance that descends or a lack of care. There's not that sense of my father said to keep this here or don't go down that tree or, or don't go near that fort. Well, just in this parish now, there are only two people left that I can visit at night. And that's it. 
As a rambling hills, you mean? Yes. And they're both over, one of them is over uh, 90, and the other one, she's 95. And when they're gone, bye bye. That's it. All over. Now, the thesis, I think, what's so important, even the work, the field work that you've been doing, the thousands and thousands of hours of, of recordings that you've made over the Without years. Without getting paid a penny. Of course, right? but, but I wonder, on the other hand, despite all of these, these kind of what feel like things slipping away or aspects of traditional life or meaning in so many ways or community falling away there's a huge thirst and a, a, a hunger and appetite for this this sort of material like in meeting the other crowd there's a kind of nourishment I think and people are, are hungry for this sort of well, for traditional knowledge to for a sense of themselves you know? I know it because I tell the stories as I say to you I know it because people out there will listen and then they're surprised but why wouldn't we told these especially in, in schools, but it shocks me in schools that, that, what would I say, that uh, the pupils know so little about them, the teachers know so little about them, the teachers, especially in primary schools, are not being taught anything about these in the colleges they're coming out of. They're being taught how to tick boxes, tick boxes now is the modern kind of education. A very sad very sad but I see it in schools constantly the older teachers did know something about it and what do you think it is today maybe that are people not interested or are they embarrassed by, by traditional oh, no. stories they're not embarrassed because there's nothing to be embarrassed about it in this kind of knowledge mm-hmm. no the opposite yeah. Yes, it's the opposite because I can go, I can go abroad any time and people abroad are fascinated by mm-hmm. it if we have so much of it in well, a small little island the thing that I liked as well even your very very the opening dedication in that book um, is to the, I can't quote it exactly now from Mary but to the tellers who's no. but who, who's, whose knowledge is more indispensable than ever now. it is yeah. it, it, it absolutely it is. is because we've been snowed under by bland shit that's available all over the world, you know, the, the, the Nike shoes and the, the Sony this and the big brands and the, you get them anywhere. And it's the same brands in shop windows there as you get in High Street, Dublin or Low Street, London or same shit. Well, I suppose this is then part of what you're saying at the start when we're sitting down before we were recording is the, the the life of our forebears when they're living in, in their own townlands and parishes often was it was contained within a relatively small physical area but it was very deep and that memory went very and deep and individual an individual to that particular place and you will not get that particular thing uh, knowledge uh, brand as we'll call it anywhere else well I suppose that's, that is the, the local versus the, the global or the international it is. Yeah. of course it is and yeah. that's why every single one of those recordings I have there is individual and I, when I come back from a place where I get a new fairy story we'll say something mm. that I haven't heard before mm. I would give you that tape for a thousand euros oh, you can, yeah. that is something that's like gold yeah. that's like gold Absolutely, yeah. I was recently down in West Limerick I met an old man and he told me a story about a fort and it was during the Troubles. A bad time for fairies and everything else you might say and for going out and for people visiting because it was too dangerous and everybody was on edge. But there was a cow calving and again there were, you know, it was kind of a time that you could go out that time and you might meet more than the cow calving but the cow was missing and they were afraid to go looking for the cow because of the towns that were in it. But they left it, hoping that she'd be all right. And there was a fort on their land. And in the morning they had the cow noising and went out. And thank God there was the cow in the fort and she had calved. But it wasn't just that. There was the calf tethered to one of the white thorn bushes by the most delicate little 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 rope of grass beautiful little delicate rope of grass and who had done it it must have been the lads did you ever hear of cows being taken by the fairies once you I did. did i did i did i did 
I thought they were taken away. Well, they've... Now you heard that uh, the sergeant, and his name was Sergeant Black, he was in Rossport one time, and he had a cow, good cow she was, a returny cow. And he was, she was a great cow, she was a great show and all, but he didn't give in, he was a Protestant, he hadn't to tape on her. But she died, I suppose she died from milk fever or something. But it was supposed that they heard the cow, was a man going the road late at night, heard the cow, leaving the stable and going over the hill, running. So the cow died and was buried. And it was supposed that that cow was taken away by the fairies. That's funny, I was gave a talk in Poland there recently and at the end of the talk, a young woman, was, there were people asking questions, a young woman asked, um, do people in Ireland still believe in the fairies? And there were Irish people and Polish people in the audience and there was a kind of, a certain kind of giggle maybe from some of the Irish people there. But I was saying that if you were to ask, I think a, a lot of Irish people about a kind of a belief in, in the other world, the supernatural or the fairy house at large, that they might kind of laugh in your face at first. But if you ask them to go and cut down a white thorn tree in the back garden, their face would go a little paler. You know what I mean? Mm. And these things are kind of always going, never gone. And actually that if you scratch the surface, a lot of them are still there. Yeah. That's true. That is true. Yes, indeed. I was asking a priest only recently, and priests are very difficult to interview because I think that education has educated out of them. Uh, they're cautious, most of them. But I was asking that priest about the banshee and putting him the questions that Sean uh, O'Sullivan would have asked in the handbook of Irish folklore um, because I wanted to just see what the priest might believe because the banshee is only the otherworldly whether the otherworldly be heaven or whatever other world and uh, he began very cautiously by quoting me the Bible and Jesus and Jesus's miracles but by the end of the conversation we had he was quite a different person because he quoted me a few stories that his own father had told him about experiences his father had had coming home on horseback on horseback and meeting something something that frightened the horse and uh, a story, or two stories, about hearing the Banshee. Now, he wasn't saying that the Banshee either existed or didn't exist, but at least he had lightened off, lightened off a bit uh, on the academic. He was quite academic when he started, but he had softened out a bit mm. to telling uh, stories, at least telling stories, stories yeah. even though the stories might have been at second hand. One night, he, something woke me and I heard my, um, my mother, I thought I heard my mother calling me and I got up, got into my slippers and went into her bedroom and I found her very upset, distraught, very much so. And uh, I wondered why she called me, I thought she never would do that unless uh, she was very ill. So she said, I've, did you hear the banshee? And I said, something woke me, I don't know what it was. Well, she said, it was the banshee. I've heard twice. And she said, I'm, I'm weak in the bed, I can scarcely talk to you. And she looked very, very disturbed. So I stayed with her, and some uh, ten, five minutes afterwards, um, I myself, I heard the same, oh, and she just gripped my hand as I was sitting at the side of the bed. I heard the same awful, unearthly um, wailing it was an unearthly, um, uh, uh, sad, sad wailing sound, ending in a no ending in a kind of a moan, a moaning wailing sound, but terrifying, absolutely terrifying. That's the only way I can tell you. It didn't seem to me like a cat or anything human, and uh, she, of course, was. You know, again became terribly disturbed and um, she said, but then she was frightened for me so she said don't take too much notice it's just a poor soul going to heaven but she said Johnny Condon has been working on a coffin tonight 
so that there's somebody dying or dead. That's the reason for this. And then 10 minutes afterwards, I heard my father's key in the door and he came up the stairs and uh, and he wanted to, he saw both of us and he knew, of course, what had happened. And my mother said, I'm not able to talk to you. Did you hear her? And my father said, yes, I did, he said. In fact, he said, it was the worst experience of her I have ever heard because the cap was lifted right off my head at the um, at Johnny Condon's gate. But he said, and on they did, they said a prayer. And so did I, we went back to bed. Now, my mother, that wasn't the first time that my mother, by the way, the person had died and the name was O'Brien. Apparently it is where there's a no in the family, I think, or Mac, or so, old, old families, old Irish families. And my father was um, um, a farmer, uh, came a farming stock in, in Cork, West Cork. So that he had, you know, I suppose the feeling ab about it. He had no doubt, anyhow, at all. And I didn't have any doubt. Uh, I, I didn't hear it. I think after that ever, I didn't. But my mother had heard it before, and they heard it afterwards. So that it, that you know, it makes one think that it isn't all fable. So they're not, they're not easy people to talk to priests. And I recently found that in a case of what seemed to me to be an exorcism, uh, a house where there was trouble, something was going on, definitely, and a family in the house, they were having some kind of bother with some, something, with uh, something in the house that wasn't right. And I asked people in the neighbourhood, what might it be? And they said, one old woman particularly said that she remembered in her young days that that something was there too for a previous family that went the house. And it seemed to be long-standing. And the priest was brought relatively recently for the for the present family in the house, and he came, he came, and he was uh, the the what would we say the exorcist for the diocese. And he, he did come. Oh Christ, he got an awful doing. He got an awful doing in the house. She, whatever he disturbed, disturbed him. Now, I. Uh, went here, the priest, the same priest, is still alive. Um, I was sent to him to find out, you know, from himself, would he maybe talk to me and would he be prepared to tell me maybe what what uh, he experienced. <coughs> but God damn it, I, I've tried his house three or four times and I cannot get him at home. And I would love to know, uh, could he confirm for me? was that true or not because mm. I'd like to hear that right out to the end because you know second hand, second hand can be second hand but the people who told me about him said no, no and the, the odd behaviour in that house goes back to a previous which is we'll say, to the house that's in the right house so there are places like that that's, yeah. there are houses like that that they're not right places, we'll say, and it could be because they're built on a path. It p could be because something bad was done there. It, it could be. It could be. It could be. But I'd like to find out. You know, as much as I could, I'd like. I I do like to follow things out to an end, if an end is there. What about ghosts up in Kegelstein? Uh, oh, ghosts! Well, wait a moment. I tell you about ghosts. There was another thing. Uh, after the after the big win, uh, eighteen thirty nine, January thirty nine, eighteen thirty nine, uh, uh, my grandfather's house was blown down. You know, and they decided they all looked for a, the most sheltered place that they could get. Then they decided that if ever there was another big win, the houses wouldn't be blown down. And he went down onto what we call the, the high rock. It was a very much sheltered place, and he started a build there. And he had he had the building up about four or five feet, and got up one morning and the whole thing knocked down. Started and rebuilt, and decided to watch it night after night, and they waited, uh, it was up five feet again, 
and this night they heard the wild weird music and down comes the uh, somebody appeared to be throwing the stones down and they were thrown down in, in spite of the fact that they approached the place with sticks and everything but down came the walls they could see nobody and they shifted that and built it to the present place when they'd be selecting a site now to build a house you know after the after the big wind yeah. yes after the big wind the the most sheltered and the most uh, low-lying place they could get mm. if it was in amongst the hills so much the better they always did that and they used to take care they wouldn't build a house on uh, what they would call a fairy path oh path. not at all oh no 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 they didn't build it they built it as far as possible away from a fairy fort well, how would they find out you now whether they were on a pad or not? Well, there was always the, there was always a story going of the, seeing the lights moving at night along these paths, mm-hmm. the fairy lights as they call them. Mm-hmm. They said uh, the, there's an old fellow down in, in uh, County Monaghan. He told us that since the after the trouble in this country, 1920 and 21 of those years, mm-hmm. he never saw the fairy lights anymore. He used to see them coming from one fort away down near Ariel and they come up on across up by, by Lockmore, the Lockmore Bog, and up to there. They used to be visiting each other, and then he'd see them going back down again later on in the night. But he said after the trouble, he never never saw them anymore. And this, that's a common idea in tradition, isn't it, that not all spaces are the same not oh, all times yes. are the same that's it absolutely and, and maybe even for again for the benefit of anyone listening who isn't aware but i mean would you be able to explain even the idea of the fairy path in tradition or what what that means or what in modern times where we have a more <laughs> secular to put a put a word in it uh, society where people look for a scientific kind of explanation more than anything else, be it for religion or for the fairies. Um, You hear people nowadays talking about ley lines, whereas people long ago, I think, would call these things fairy paths. Now, a fairy path, I've always heard it, uh, is associated with just that. A path that, because the fairies are just like us in practically every way, they have their roads. They have to. They're going somewhere too. And very often their paths are marked by fairy bushes, lone bushes. And if if you see a lone bush at one place, there'll be a lone bush at somewhere else. Uh, that's their markers. According to some people, other people say no. A lone bush is where they collect to do their business, we'll say, uh, to collect after a game or before a game of hodling or whatever. There's various, uh, there's various explanations for fairy bushes, but... This is the bush kind of standing alone in a field? Oh, yeah. Not alone, planted by a human hand? Kind of. A lone white thorn bush. And nobody would seem to know where that particular bush uh, comes from. Is it... No, again... Could it be dropped by a bird? Who knows where a bush like that comes from? If you want to look for rational explanations, you can say, oh, sure, I mean, haws are dropped by birds. The seed of a haw could be, who knows? But a fairy bush, you see, if you look at it from the other side, uh, you don't dig up a fairy bush or disturb it uh, and replant it for the simple reason that, as I had one old man saying, a fairy bush belongs where it belongs where it belongs. That's the way he put it. And there's no point in replanting it somewhere else because that's where it belongs. And an old man told me recently that when a little child, one of those ones that was stillborn or unbaptized and would normally be buried in a kyleen, uh, if that wasn't possible, for whatever whatever reason, and if there was a fairy bush nearby, that child would sometimes be buried under the fairy bush. And the reason? It was the most safe place to bury a little child, because it was like burying a child under a gravestone. Nobody would shift a fairy bush. It was an absolutely safe place to bury a child. And that's a very interesting point. The, the Christian and the fairy coming together like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. seamlessly yeah. and, and I met an old man whose little brother was buried under a fairy bush mm. and I remember watching him as he told me that 
and a person doesn't tell you a thing like that if as a lie you don't you a person you don't tell I'm sure a lie about your little brother who has died God only knows how, how many years before mm. uh, if you do you're a very strange person mm. no he was not lying his brother was buried he said under a fairy bush and he said what safer place could he be buried under the Nundrishkach and the idea then to go to this the sense of a house with an odd, an odd disturbance about it that if you built your house across one of these paths that oh, you'd know about it I well that's the story I have in that about that and that house is still standing mm. it's abandoned now but I have a photo of it there and what happened in that house? oh sure there were all kinds of disturbances the dresser used to come down at night and tables and chairs dancing around the floor and and if it continued, a mass was set in the house, no difference, no difference at all, until an old travelling man came the way and told them, and told them what they were after doing, and how to, how to fix the problem. And then he, he pointed out, look, he said, standing in the middle of the kitchen, he said, look down, fairy bush away down long, a lone white thorn, look out the back door, Another way turned down the field here after building on their path. And of course they asked, what, what can we do? Because they were getting ready to move out. They were after moving out of an old keep of a house they had, you know, it was ready to fall. This was a new house, new slated house, grand house. But but uh, he said, look what you did. When they come through here at night, he said, they're striking the wall there at the back. He said, if you want any peace here, he says, look, he says, open up a door there and close that one. Once they're striking the wall here, he says, you'll have no peace in this house. And that very that very same day, your man that told me the story, he says, my father, that's what he did. He opened up a door there and with the stones of that one, he closed this. And we went to bed that night and he said, we were there waiting for the nice to start as usual. No oh, nice. Fixed it. Once they could pass in their path where they'd been passing, he says, from the start of the world. No more nice. Um, the fairies was, was supposed to be in every place that time, do you know? With all the old people, the, the fairy stories they had it. A man would come in or a woman would come in, you'd be there in the day or the night. A woman would come in and she'd tell you not to open that door or don't throw that water anymore in that place you've thrown it out. That'd be the broad daylight. Them stories was going around too in the old times. They'd put the fear of the Lord in you with the, the fairy stories the old people had. If you were around that time and you'd have, you could fill this, this house with, with, with stuff up of the old people with the fairy stories. Whether they were true or not, of course they believed solid in them that they were true, that the fairies was in it. You know, but I never seen no nothing, you know, fairies. But they said that the fairies were in it, you know, in that time. I often heard now that that um, in certain houses, if you wouldn't gone out of the pipe place around the fire at a certain hour of the night, that you'd be cleared out of it. But this night, they wouldn't gone out of the place that was up late or something. And there was an empty chair in the in the front of the fire like that, and they started to, you know, to go backwards and forwards, and no one sitting in it. No one, the people around couldn't see no one. Yet there must be something in the, someone, some token for to get out of the fireplace and go away like you to bed or someplace. The chair started to move backwards and forwards, and no one sitting in it. And I tell the old people saying that. And this kind of goes to the idea that we have in this country of, of the other world and that it's kind of intermingled with our own, we coexist, we, we often bleed into each other kind of at these... Oh, God, it's not a kind of over there, you know, you go to heaven, never come, it's, you can go to these places and, and come back, you can spend enormous amounts of time there in the blink of an eye or no time can pass and it feels like hundreds of years for you or... No, no, no. I think that's only that with Christianity. I think that was a way to let people understand mm. that 
you'll be in, we'll say, in purgatory for a thousand years, you know, to, maybe when people couldn't read or write or whatever, to give people a notion that big time, big time, to make up for such sin, you know, very understandable, very understandable, but, but, I, I, what's I going to say, I met an old man, not met, I knew him, I have, I think, 160 or 170 hours of him there on MD. One of those people that you rarely meet, I think I've only met three or four of them in 44 years. But somebody, you can't get the end of their stories. You go on and on and on until you meet him in hospital when they're dying. You just follow, you know, you, know, you can't abandon people like this. You just have to you become one of the family, except he had no family. He never got married the same man, Mickey Griffey. But Mickey, he told me he met him. And I, I knew Mickey very well, and I had no reason to disbelieve him. And I remember asking him, Mickey, I said, what do they look like? <laughs> and... I remember being up in that old house of his and God, the place was filthy. Filthy, I mean smoke and ashes and dirt because the place hadn't been cleaned, I'd say, for 30 years, you know, an old bachelor house now, a big open fireplace. And I remember him pausing, old fag, <laughs> John Clare. And he lived to be 99, a, a week short of 100. And he died there last October. When he says, the person beside you could be one of them, and you wouldn't know it. And yeah, it, it's an answer. When you think of it, it's a, it's a frightening answer. The person beside you could be one of them, and you wouldn't know it. All this nonsense about the little people and the pointy ears and all that old stuff. Uh -uh. And just like us. Or they can take an animal shape, of course, but they can take any shape they like. But if you don't interfere with them, they won't interfere with you. But by God, if you do, it could cost you your life. But people nowadays, you see, with the fading away of tradition. Hmm. Up the road there. Half, no, I'm wrong. Two, two and a half miles up the road. Just there, we're very near the Galway border here. But when they were building the motorway, this, when you came up there, the motorway, the M18, they clipped a fort. They chopped a third of it. Now, since they did that, there have been, oh, at least 30 accidents on that section of the road. Practically none between here and Ennis. We're halfway between Ennis and Gort here. Eight miles to Ennis, eight miles to Gott. Crochet is in the middle. There have been at least 20, if not more, accidents. <laughs> it's almost a regular thing. One or other of those carriageways up there is blocked by an accident. Practically none in that section. All the same road. Now, I've had some of the old people saying, what could they expect? Look what they did to the fort. And... Mm, now, I've said it to the engineers, you know, here, and the stupid answer, oh, but there's a mini climate up there. I mean, come on, the fuck's sake. <laughs> How stupid can engineers be? Now, if I was to say to them, look what you did to the fort, it is the fairies, they'd fucking laugh at me. You can laugh at them, too, for their stupidity, but if I were to, or if you were to do that to a fort, you'd be up in court. They can do that to a fault and just bulldoze through a thing and no bother at all. But could it perhaps have something to do with it? I don't know. All I'm saying is there have been an amazing amount of accidents on that stretch of road time after time after time. But they bulldoze the fault and it's right there. You can see it there to the verge on the left as you go up towards Gott. So who knows? Who knows? Did you ever hear much about the fairies around Dorfest? Was there any traditions about them? Yes, there was, about the forts, that you could never, you should never cut a bush in a fort. And an old cousin of mine, an old bachelor, they had a fort on their farm. Yeah. 
in a place called Lisbrian. You could understand there were plenty of lisses around there. And this fort, he insisted on cutting down some bushes out of it. And his sister alleged that it was a curse. He, a thorn got in his eye and he lost the sight of the eye. And that's not your first time, I mean, talking with and dealing with engineers and those sorts of buildings. I mean, there was a very famous, there was an internationally famous case. In yeah, below Latoon in the bush. It was in 1999, wasn't that's it? That's right. What, what happened there with the, the, the lone bush? Well, the bush was, I knew it from some of the local old people there that I, and another old man there was another one of those men that I have so many hours of, and he was outstanding man. Uh, he knew his history, he knew his background there. Uh, he must have been a great listener because oh, he, he was a pleasure to, to listen to. And I used to call to him regularly when I'd be coming home from school. I was teaching in Limerick at the time. And some of his stories are in there. Any of the um, stories marked Drumline, there he is. Dwyer was his name. But uh, he and others, Flan Liddy, some of the other people around there, they told me about the bush. That's, that's But I was coming home one evening and uh, I saw the diggers and machinery there, and so I stopped. And I just said to one of the workmen, you know, with the helmets, what's happening here? I thought it was a housing estate or something, but to be a quiet place for a housing estate. So I said, What? What? They said, This is the way the new motorway is coming. I said, What's going to happen to the bush? Now, the bush at that time was up on a big height of rock, standing out, you couldn't miss it. Now, it was down in a, but millions and millions of tons of earth, you see, were moved there when the road was being built, as you'd expect from a motorway. But uh, he knew nothing about the bush. He was only a worker there. So uh, I, I uh, phoned Claire FM, and fair enough, they, they gave me my say. And I wrote a letter to, to the Clare Champion, and I printed it. But then I wrote to the Irish Times. And your man from the, the correspondent from the New York Times, I remember Jim Clarity was his name, he saw it. And whether he just thought it was a petty leprechaun story, I don't know, but he published a quarter of a page feature in the New York Times about it, um, with myself and the bush in the background. But uh, it was syndicated about, I think, in 20 papers across America. And then the fun started because the BBC came and French television and Belgian television, since Scandinavian, and what, 10 different crowds came. But of course, then the, the NRA, they couldn't very well shift the bush because they looked very stupid indeed after all the publicity. So what they did was, what they should have done in the first place, of course, was, except that they didn't probably know genuinely. Uh, they just went back a couple of kilometres and varied the road slightly around the bush. And uh, in any case, it's there. And some little shithead then had to come along with a chainsaw and cut every branch off of it. For no good reason. Came every single branch down to the stump almost. When was that? Huh? When was that? About, about, uh, the, the motorway was in, uh, in action. About a year after the, the motorway opened. Some bollocks. Why? What kind of spiteful thing to do? But a couple of those old men said, where is he now? Where is he? As if to say, hmm, you don't get away with a thing like that. And But he came back in full bloom, it's back again, like he was only pruning it, the fucker. Well, I wonder, did he prune himself as well? Because you don't do those kind of things and get away with it. See, we have, Tom in our house, my father had a great big tree, and it's a, oh, an awful big tree. Mm. And it's an apple tree. And, of course, it's, it interfered with my father. Of course, I suppose they have it took over the field where it is now because the corn field, it was in. My father always ploughed and everything around, and people used to say, you're a foolish old man. What do you think you are? Why don't you throw that tree down and have all that space? No, says my father. That tree is there in our old generation, and that's a real old, old tree, he said. And that's a fairy tree, he says, and I would not touch it. My father wouldn't touch the tree. No, he wouldn't let you go near an apple on it. Really? The poor old... There was old, an apple. Oh, I wouldn't eat an apple off for anything. Oh, no, my father wouldn't have even touched an apple off. No, it's they any other trees. They packed out with apples, to be, and still we wouldn't touch them. The cows, like, 
cows are willing to come into the field. They would eat the apple yeah. stuff, but we wouldn't twitch them, no. Twitch nothing belongs to a fair, you're not supposed to. And there's a certain ignorance, I suppose, in some of these, um, like you're saying, the workers who wouldn't know necessarily about these places if they're not from the area. But when people were confined to horse and car travel, well, how far were you inclined to travel? Not far, but what you heard, you... you it stuck. It stuck, mm. because it, it wasn't wide, but it was deep. Yeah. And from being repeated and repeated stories being told again and again, those are the kind of stories that you remember. Be old-fashioned. And, and what, what do you think, then, for, say, the, the, the future of tradition, in a sense? I mean, because on the one hand, you have the thirst and the, the appetite for this material and there is real nourishment in it as opposed to just that which en- endlessly generates appetite and, and noise that we see in modernity so often but on the one hand it's so easy now technology to spread more more knowledge about mm-hmm. traditional customs or to teach even the younger generation or children that they'd know be proud of these things and know about them but well I, I, I would never compromise on the real thing mm. ever no matter even for children and if the, if the stories have to be bloody good and if the stories are about banshee it's about the banshee i was above recently in dublin and i was listening to stories and come on it's banshees uh, and mini banshees and banshee children's teaching you know the banshee family and i said to myself that's not right to be teaching children about that kind of drivel about the banshee i said no way no way. And there'd be books out now about that, Mrs. Banshee, and that kind of Mr. Banshee, kind of. Come on, that... It's funny, it, it reminds me a bit of what, you know, the likes of Sean Sudo and, and Delargy when they started the Folklore Commission, or the Folklore Warren Society, uh, and Hyde as well, even when they were thinking about, there's the quote, the rubbish that passes for folklore from the, yes. the very late 19th century, florid, overblown literary kind of stuff that made them kind of... I suppose they began this mechanical shift where they decided exactly as you're saying they wanted to document the real the real thing like yes. you've been doing in your own fieldwork and then to you know the way lullaby, lullabies are often murderous and dark oh, yes. but they but not to sanitize the wildness no. or the creativity no. of this and there's again I suppose it just points to the generally the slightly fever fever feverish and yet kind of tepid room temperature existence I suppose that that can pervade different aspects of modernity where you, you try and clean everything away and make it all well, sure, a bit what, safe. Yeah, that's what happened. Well, you know as well as I do, these, these fairy tales, the fairy tales that we have, Cinderella and all those, uh, what happened to them in the Victorian age? You know, what they were like in reality. But it would be an awful shame if the same thing happened to these. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it anyway. But no, I know what you're talking about when you say about, about stories being being bottlerized and, and reduced to nicey nicey versions. I would any time I go into schools I'd always ask the teacher, is there any person in the class who has been recently um bereaved, or is there any person in the class who is sick or has a, a deformity or anything else? And then I'd ask the kids, what kind of stories do you want? And always the answer is the same. Bloody mother, ah, horror stories. And then I say to them, are you sure? Because you know the horror that's on television, you know. <laughs> you, know you know better than I do that it's only nonsense, that's only computerised kind of stuff. And they do know. They're not stupid, these kids, even primary school kids. I say, if you want horror stories... I give you horror stories, there's plenty of those in Irish folklore. I wouldn't use the word folklore because they might not, but they might. There's plenty of those in Irish stories, I say. It's it's, uh, kind of a thing that would make people think. Mm. Interesting, interesting kind of stories, Mm. no doubt about it. Mm. Well, I just want to, I suppose, thank you so much for your time and for all the the stories that you tell and spread around and all the field work and recordings that you do are just incredible to keep such a document of uh, of local memory that's of national importance international importance I think you can be described as national treasure I think you'd hopefully be an international one now if people listen to this around, around different parts parts of the world or whatever but just uh, just want to thank you so much for your time and, no and for, uh, for telling the old stories and I suppose knowing and honouring the, the people who told them as well so well, I give you no tea. God bless him. Sorry, that you have a cup of tea.
Huh? You have a cup of tea? Of course, yeah, if you've done, yeah. Right, a cup of tea. Thanks, Lady, really appreciate it. Cheers. Not at all. Thanks, Lady, really appreciate it. Leaving the village of Crusheen, with night overtaking me on the road back to Dublin, I left with a great sense of the importance of our traditional stories. These are not the flotsam and jetsam of a misguided past, or the product of childish superstition forged in the half-light of ignorance. Our traditional narratives orient us, they guide us, they console us, and they let our imagination take flight. They connect us to the land and to our collective past, and as such, can serve to guide and inspire us in the future. At the heart of it all, as Eddie himself has written, these stories are about respect. Respect for the land, for local knowledge, for the past, for the elderly, for those who have gone before us, and for those generations who will come after us. Ultimately, to have respect for these traditional narratives is to have respect for ourselves and for our culture, which Eddie has done so much work in his time to safeguard. In a world in which the echoes of the past are often drowned out by so much noise, we would do well to take the time for silence, to sit and listen to the voice of tradition as it speaks to us over and over again.